Today's episode of Quarantine Creatives is brought to you by Soak Pools. Soak Pools are revolutionary space-saving pools that combine the best of a pool and a hot tub, install in just days, and provide year-round enjoyment. Soak Pools are made to your specifications in New Hampshire, and they can be shipped anywhere in the country to be installed by your local pool company. They're quicker and less disruptive to install than a typical in-ground pool, and they take up a smaller footprint, meaning they could fit in many backyards where a pool hasn't always been an option. And I gotta tell you, they look beautiful. If you're like me, you're stuck quarantined at home with no vacation plans on the horizon, so why not make your backyard feel more like a resort with a beautiful pool? You can go out there, just relax, spend time floating, looking up at the sky, watching the clouds go by. If I had one of these in my yard, I would be spending my quarantine out there probably every single day. For more information, visit www.soakpools.com. That's Soak Pools with an E, S-O-A-K-E-P-O-O-L-S, Com. Soak pools. Small pools, big benefits. Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Got a really, really good guest on the show today. I am very excited about this one. Eddie Sato is going to be here. Eddie Sato is a uh, he's a designer that has worked in the theme park space for a long time, but also all sorts of sort of public entertainment venues, restaurants, retail, airports, private planes. Eddie has uh, has had a hand in in designing so much. So I'm really excited to talk to him. That's going to be coming up in just a second. Before we get to that, I feel like I just have to acknowledge that here we are. It's Memorial Day. We're now eclipsing 100,000 deaths from coronavirus in the U.S., which is just such a huge, staggering number. It's, it's really, really hard to picture just how destructive this virus has been. And obviously, there's 100,000 people that have lost their lives to this and many, many thousands more that have suffered with this, this disease. But it's affected all of us too, right? And it's it's a strange thing because Memorial Day, it's supposed to be a sacred holiday, right? It's a day where we remember the people that have given their lives in service of this country. But it's also sort of become the de facto start to summer for a lot of people. It's a, it's a long weekend to get away, to forget about your problems for a while. For us, often, it meant a trip to our local uh, amusement park, Canopy Lake Park. It often for my family would be a trip to Cape Cod. We'd go down and hang out at the drive-in movies or eat some fried clams or take a walk on the beach. And we're not doing that this year. We're spending Memorial Day weekend just like we spent every other day for the last two-plus months at home, trying to stay safe, trying to stop this virus from spreading. And I know for a lot of people, this weekend would be a chance to head down to Florida or to head to Anaheim to go to Disney World or to go to Disneyland. And for a lot of families, that tradition is not an option now either because there are 12 Disney parks around the world. 11 of them are completely closed. The only one that's open is in Shanghai right now, and that just opened, and it's at a very reduced capacity. And I think we all kind of wonder, when will we be able to safely go back to these parks? And what's that experience going to look like when we get there? I know this podcast has traditionally been about, about TV production, about film production, And part of why I'm excited that Eddie's here is because this is a very different look at the same problem. For all of us on the production side, this quarantine has been about 
not being able to be on set, not being able to create the mass entertainment that we enjoy sharing with with an audience. And I think Eddie and the other Imagineers are doing a very similar thing when they're designing a theme park. So Eddie has a has a really interesting take on sort of how those two worlds, filmed entertainment and physical entertainment, are intertwined. And also, what is that entertainment going to look like when the theme parks can reopen? Eddie was the senior vice president of concept design at Disney's Imagineering division. And since the early 2000s, he has owned Sato Studios, which is a Los Angeles-based design firm. And his studio helps people in all industries take the principles of theme park design and apply them elsewhere. Whether that's a a high-end luxury car dealership, whether that's a private airplane, Eddie has, uh, he's designed it all. And he's got a really interesting take on how COVID will affect that experience going forward. So here's my interview with former Imagineer Eddie Sato. You know, this this podcast is primarily for people in the TV and film business, but your work mm. in, in theme park design and restaurants, retail, uh, public spaces like that, there's a lot of parallels between, for me at least, I see like what an art director does, what a production designer does, things like that. Help me understand sort of if I'm if I'm someone working on a TV or film set, how is your world similar to my world? You know, deliberately in my career, uh, I was educated by set designers. I didn't go to college. Uh, there was no college course in 1980 for theme park design. That just didn't exist. If you wanted to do that, uh, you research Disneyland. And when you do that, you find out that Walt Disney was very dissatisfied with what architects brought in. Uh, but what he loved was the idea of taking people into another world. And so he used primarily 20th Century Fox set designers as television came in. There was a lot of people with not a lot to do. And Walt Disney decided to recruit them and uh, brought some heads of the art department from Fox into the Disney network. And so those set designers became really the architects of Disneyland. The architects did the facilities But the set designers, they use their sense of scale and color and psychology. And that's really truly what made Disneyland an immersive world was uh, these tremendous talents. So when I was growing up in this, um, I went on the Fox lot at about age 10 and walked the Hello Dolly New York Street, which is in remnants still there, but was really overwhelmed. It was a life-changing thing to, to see uh, literally a day. It was a Sunday, and I guess Monday they were going to shoot the parade sequence. So the set was pretty much hot, wow. and you could walk down that street. And as as the guide took us down to the same path that Gene Kelly directed the camera to zoom in on Streisand with that parade, uh, every few feet we would look back and see how the set was fake, but then look forward and see how it was totally real. And this made an impression upon me even deeper than Disneyland did. And said, I want to do that. I want to meet the the set designer. Eventually, I got to to meet John DeCure Sr., who was the set designer, and many others who worked on that film. And so I decided that, you know, in, in going to create theme parks, that I was going to actually adopt more from the process of the way a set designer, and I've taken the courses in set design and in production design, and how you break down a script how you really, you know, really mine the emotion. I've kind of made it a, literally a, a life's hobby or fascination, kind of like Peter Bogdanovich chased down all the directors. Well, I chased down Dean Tavalaris, or you chased down John DeCure or William Krieber or, you know, all the, all the different ones who uh, really had a wonderful self-driven process, 
knowing what an audience does uh, before they, or an actor does before they walk into a scene and the minute they walk out of a scene, really understanding the arc of, of the character of what's in people's hearts or minds and then designing to support that is what I do in theme parks. And, and people in architecture think you're, I don't know, that you pick up photocopies of things and you just plagiarize their work, right? Well, no, you're a psychologist. I'm sorry, theme park designers are truly uh, are anthropologists and psychologists. We're engineering emotions. We're designing emotions the same way a production designer designs emotions in a film. I tried to bring that in the real world and use the same collaborative process in film to do that, you know? And uh, unfortunately, that's lost on a lot of people. So my company today, uh, we call it experiential design. That's the formal real world way of saying you're taking production design and you're reverse engineering it where the, the public is the protagonist. They're the actor. Unfortunately, they don't have a script. You're, you're just creating a world for them to literally ad lib or riff in and uh, giving them the tools to escape. I know Dean Tavalaris, the production designer who worked on the conversation, told me the story that he went so deep that he would put Tums in the pockets of Gene Hackman's character in the costuming oh, wow. or fill the desk drawers that were never in the, you know, none of that was in the script that were going to open the drawer. But in case they did, or Gene's character reached in his pocket, he would find the keys to his apartment or, or a roll of Tums because he was under stress. And so to me, the details I would put in a Disney Main Street were never what the public would normally see on the first visit. But it would literally help take them every time they question whether they're really in 1890, they're they're rewarded by reaching in figuratively into that pocket and seeing a Disney detail. Like a good production designer, the details are nine miles deep. So when right. the audience starts to lose it or the actor loses it, you know, you're keeping the actor in the moment and you're keeping the audience in the moment. So I owe a tremendous debt to the great production designers, you know, of of that time, you know, and you're acting, you're acting not just as a production designer, but in some ways as a director too, sort of controlling what they see or how they move through a space or, or how they experience that space. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting, Walt Disney, if you look at Disneyland, if you're familiar with Disneyland or sure. been there, you walk, you walk underneath these two portals of a railroad station, which are really masking out the park. The park is surrounded with a berm. Well, the only way Walt Disney knew to build a 20-foot-tall wall of dirt around Disneyland is because the studio backlot at Disney had a berm. They built bermed, bermed areas, so the camera, with the camera can't see it, doesn't know it's there. So this idea of immersion, of going through a portal or, or literally through a, uh, and I always looked at it like a movie theater, uh, it's very much, you know, like walking into a theater and instead of finding seats, you're now in the film. Sure. For my, one of my jobs is designing Main Street USA for the Disneyland we did in France. It's half gaslight, half electric, half horses, half cars. It's a small town that's in the middle of change, kind of like we have hybrid cars today. Sure. You know, it's not completely figured out. It's two engines and has, sometimes it's gas and sometimes it's electric. Well, 100 years earlier, it was the same thing with gas and electric lights. It's interesting to me just thinking about sort of those those close-up details, if you will, the things that the guest is experiencing right in front of them or that the actor, in the case of a movie, is is feeling or touching or, you know, that, that makes that environment real that's, that's right in front of them. But your point about the berm as well sort of made me think about the process of filmmaking, of 
you know, when you're watching a movie and there's just this beautifully lit, uh, you know, portrait of, of the star and they look great, what you don't see is the boom mic that's, you know, six inches above their head or the, the bounce <laughs> cards that are right next to them. And, yeah, and right. sort of in the same way, like, you know, your mind sort of fills in what else is happening in that frame when you, when you sit in a cinema and watch a movie. And it does that in the Disney parks too, that, you know, that berm, it, it suggests infinity to you that when you're in Adventureland, you know, on the Jungle Cruise or something, you're, what, 40 feet from the real world, you know, there's an access road right on the other side of those trees. But because that berm is there and it's built up, your mind kind of fills that in and you just think you're you're in the depths of this jungle, right? Right. You know, and I think it was storytelling too. When you're reverse engineering it and the public is the protagonist or they're just showing up, you don't want to be so specific about it that you ruin their ability to dream and put themselves into the story themselves. So what mm. we really did Main Street, these environments, 1890s America, it's a premise. It's like an Impressionist painting. You know, if you look at an Impressionist painting, um, it's just light and shadow. So the public, you can imagine the haystacks, you know, of Monet the way you want to. And they're your haystacks. You're going to bring that from your life experience. In other words, don't rob the audience of allowing them to finish the world in their head. You know, uh, we also have the other sensations theaters don't have, which is, you know, in, in Main Street, we would blow the smell of candy when they're making the fudge under out from the kitchen out into the street. You know, we would use touch and texture and all these sensations. A good designer, holistic designers have to think about that or day to night. The music changes at nighttime because your state of mind is different. It's more twinkly at night. I mean, so imagine, you know, a film being a dynamic environment. And I, what I like about it is it. It, it does evolve and it changes. And, and of course, you can go back and fix it. And, and people literally on Twitter today, 30 years later, write me about Disneyland Paris, how much they love the details or, or what memory they made in your environment. Like, I'm really enjoying this conversation and <laughs> just thinking back to, you know, memories that I've made in Disney parks. But well, what was I, your best memory? What, what, what stood out to you? I'd like to know. Um, for me, it was probably my first trip with my daughter when she was born. We, we went to Walt Disney World when she was about four months old. And we didn't make it to the parks, but we decided to splurge and, and stay at the Polynesian. And uh, just walking through the gardens there every day and pushing her in the stroller and super relaxed. And we'd go out at night on the beach and watch the fireworks from the Magic Kingdom and, and hearing the, uh, the, the whistle of the steamboat going back and forth. And I think part of it was just the joy of being a new parent and, you know, all of that. But that, uh, that ranks wow, right wow. up there, I would say. And, and that's, not even a, that's not even a theme park. That's a resort side of it. But we, yeah, go ahead. That's interesting. Um, no, I'm just saying it's interesting because today what we do is we do resorts and these other experiences. And what people tend to miss is that, you know, from the curb to the gate is a guest experience. Now, it so happens in an airport. It's not a very fun one. Sure. But those are things that need to be revisited. And so a lot of what we do today is we revisit those. So I love the fact that you didn't even have to go into the park. But the resort was, you know, like like a good orchestra. The experience was tuned well enough that it all, you know, it all fit together in such a way. Uh, it all harmonized uh, in a way that you still got a lot out of it. And frankly, maybe the park with all of its crowds and lines, maybe for uh, a newborn child, really would have been a negative experience. So you probably 
you probably picked the very best way to experience Disney World at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's it's changed, obviously, as the kids have gotten older. We'll, you know, we'll go in and we'll ride Big Thunder Mountain or Expedition Everest or whatever it is. Or, you know, we've been to Disneyland mm. with them. And yeah, it, it definitely, it's a it's a place that evolves with us as, as we grow and change as a family. Uh, but it also, you know, I'm enjoying reminiscing like this, but I'm thinking sort of about the, the harsh reality of where we are right now that I, I can't have those memories right now. I can't make those memories. You know, there's, there's 12 Disney parks across the world and 11 of them are closed right now. One is, is open at like a very reduced capacity. And as we're talking today, I think it's the first day that the Disney Springs, the kind of shopping and, and dining complex in Florida is just starting a, a phased reopening. And, and by the time this runs, you know, that'll have been four or five days into it. So we'll probably <laughs> know more at that point. But just sort of thinking about how we start reopening mass entertainment of any kind, not just theme parks, but you mentioned airports, malls, sort of uh, all of that. Um, I, I know you've done a lot of work with your firm in, in sort of helping businesses figure out what that next step looks like. What, what's your perspective as we're talking today on, on how you keep people safe as they start going back out into the world? Well, I think as a designer or an innovator or an imagineer, uh, I really, uh, I believe that there's no bigger need for creativity than there is right now. And I feel like the guest experience, this magical guest experience is an endangered species. It truly is. It's an endangered species. And if you look at if you look at the pattern of the way that the world dealt with terrorism, especially here in the USA, is that a lot of Band-Aid solutions came out. Oh, well, you need to have this detector and that detector. And unfortunately, um, the guest experience, you know, because of the tremendous immediate need uh, to be safe from terror, we ended up with a hardware store in the in the lobby of every great uh, terminal. Sure. And it looks like it looks like a hardware store, and it looks like a. Uh, police checkpoint, you know, out of the third man or something. Yeah. So you, you say, well, what, what, what do we have here? And so what the way that Imagineering worked and the way I believe this problem should be approached is, yes, there's going to be Band-Aids and we're going to make mistakes of trying to get open. But the worst tragedy of all would be is to throw all these regulations out there and to, to try all these things and have it alienate the audience from coming for these guest experience and goes, well, you know what? Uh, it just wasn't worth it. Uh, because frankly, fantasy environments like Disneyland, they are an escape. And we're charging you a lot sure. for that berm to get out of the real world. And I could be wrong about this. Maybe people will forget about it like they forget about a lot of things. But when you put masks on the cast members and the guests, and they just mandated this, you're erasing the smiles on people's faces. A smile is a cast member's secret weapon to reverse a crying child who's lost their parents, to reassure someone, to welcome someone. I mean, the dolls in the small world, you know, are all singing much to everyone's regret. You know, a smile <laughs> means friendship to everyone until right. you, until you're uh, have a, a grin on your face, you know, even though you, you may not even know it. So, I feel like the smile and all of this is a big endangered species. And so masks and distancing, if you're being reminded that you're in a hospital waiting room when you're supposed to be in fantasy land, I don't know that that's a good thing. And so you're paying to forget about the real world. So how we do these things, not that we ignore them because safety is always job one. You know, you have to design rides that don't kill people and hurt people. But here's my point. 
you have for 2.0 and that's like what is the real disney world going to be what are we going to what is the new normal going to be once we've gone through this opening night jitters of uh safety regulations and things what's the real solution what do we want it to be and i think this is where from an imagineering perspective and i put together my own dream team of people to do this very smart from science and all the different areas to say what do we want it to be what will people come back for what is that Polynesian resort experience? Maybe, not, maybe it's not exactly what you had with your child, but I know you'll pay to come do that. And that is a business. How do we use a vision? Start with a vision of what people will show up for and then use our best creative skills to seamlessly bury, to hide. If we have to develop a different kind of mask that you can see right through the mask and you can like a shield or something that you can see the smile that doesn't denigrate it. Or we come up with other processes where the where people are only well people are in the park and they don't have to think about it. Basically, if you're if you're reacting to things and you're being reactive, it's a very different solution than people that are being planners and proactive. And so if you were shooting the film and you announced your shooting schedule and you were shooting every single day and decided, hey, now we need a set, go get one. Look, go find go find the locations while you're in production. Right. It's going to be a very different movie. I'm telling you, it's going to be a very different movie. That's what we're doing now. We're like going, uh, go get a mask. Uh, go get a temperature reader. You know, temperature readers are not 100%. Masks, hey, every, every theme park only survives because there's food carts every four feet with a churro. Right. So the masks will probably be off more than they're on. I mean, when people sell those ride photographs of people screaming going down in a water mm. ride, by the way, water rides that have splashing, once the mask gets wet, that defeats the purpose of the mask. Yeah. And there's a lot of things to think about and unpack here as to how these things work with stadiums and everything else. I don't know about you, but if I'm at a concert, I, I, I don't know. Am I ever going to go, you know, thank goodness the Ramones didn't have this problem because you would never have a mosh pit, <laughs> right. you know? Um Right, exactly. So there's a lot of things that are psychologically dependent. I know when when uh, Jaws came out, my wife would not go back in, in the ocean. Well, that was a rubber shark. There was no real danger right. there. So part of our battle, and I think film people, your audience understands this better than anybody, part of this is psychological. These masks don't necessarily guarantee much of anything. A lot of the ones that people choose, they're not going to really prevent something are they i mean you know they even say that coronavirus can travel into your eyes so does that mean everyone's going to be wearing goggles and masks a lot of these things have to do with, with making people be feel reassured that's what a park does that's what these things do but i i approach things from how i design emotions before i design architecture and so that's the first thing on my mind is what happens to you and your family or somebody are they going to pay that obscene amount of money you pay to go to these theme parks you know again and again if if it's just if you're not feeling it yeah you know it's like tom hanks and big i don't get it these are all <laughs> toys but are they fun right and i feel like that that was that moment when the board of directors goes well here's a toy and all you have to do is wear a mask and put on rubber gloves to experience <laughs> it and tom hanks is like well i'm a kid i don't get it right it's just not fun and i feel it's that primal it's not fun tom hanks and big revelation that's going to hit, unfortunately, the theme park operators. And and I'm not saying that everyone's doomed. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I just wrote an article uh, about what what the endangered species of the smile in a theme park. I just say the real winners are going to be the resort owners that are going to 
hire the best creatives. And, and I, I'd like to think that we're part of that and putting the dream team together and saying, we're going to look for 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. Right now we, we got to figure out the opening, but even from a business model perspective, if you can only entertain a, a half full theater, no, no one ever, no one ever had a Broadway hit with people sitting six feet apart. Right, that of I course, know of. of course. So, yeah, right, right. There is a piece of this. You know, I, I know for myself, the thought of, of other guests and cast members wearing masks, there is a piece that's reassuring to me, even if it's not practical. And just that idea of right, sort of, right. we, we talk about security theater sometimes when it comes to TSA or, or different checkpoints at, at public events. Uh, what about health theater? Well, absolutely. I wrote an article once about Knott's Berry Farm, which is a theme park here in, in California that started in the 1920s before they had OSHA and all kinds of regulations and things like that. And it was a Western themed thing. So they have a real live locomotive, a giant full size thing that runs through the crowd. You couldn't bisect the park. You couldn't walk across the town square without the train running through it. And I, and I remembered starting at Knott's in 1980. And, you know, and looking over the shoulder of Knott's Berry Farm or Disneyland's a few miles away with barriers and railings and all this safety stuff and said, sure. why does Disneyland have all these railings and you guys run the locomotive through the street? How do you get away with that? And they go, well, we get away with that really easy because people see this giant, you know, 200 degree steam locomotive and it blows this deafening whistle and it starts breathing like a giant, you know, uh, mammoth you know, beast. And then it, and then people step aside because they don't want to get run over and the train goes by and no one has ever gotten hurt because they respect it. And I, here's where I, here's my point. Where we are headed now is instead of being in the world where we've designed for every single eventuality and every single thing where we, where people have no responsibility for themselves, every railing is prevents you from doing anything. We're going to go into a shared experience world because we all have to bring our own mask. We have to distance ourselves. There's going to be this world where the operator of an event or a movie theater or whatever has to share the responsibility with the public. Now, the public, there's going to be bad actors, of course, you know, and there always will be. There's drunks in every bar that get thrown out. Sure. But at the same point in time, safety and health will be a shared thing. And I feel like let's don't talk down to people. Let's respect people, talk up to them, and have faith in, in the public. I know that sounds a bit Pollyanna, but it can work. I mean, clean places like Disneyland have less trash on the ground than filthy places because people don't respect it when they see the filth. In other words, if you elevate your environment and do the masks, you do safety things or whatever it is, but maybe we do it in a more creative way. And I'd like to think that augmented reality we just we're working part of our team is augmented reality so we're doing this augmented reality game where the the objects you see actually are obstacles and they create distancing in other words what if it was fun hmm. and a game to create the distancing so at knots a big boysenberry is between you and your family and you get to you get to maybe win prizes from it or there's like an incentive but the idea is using these things to create a fun way of following it and saying well you know what i like i like following the rules better when they're fun or using technology for virtual cues where you're not literally standing in line you show up just in time so there's a lot of ways to create you know luxury uh, or frictionless environments that are still convenient and don't annoy people in other words, if you create a natural way to distance people versus telling people every two seconds, hey, you, 
you're not on that sticker. Right. See, my I don't think it's a clean solution to put stickers everywhere. Right. Or Disneyland has has signs in the bathroom that tell people how to wash your hands. It's true. It says turn on the water, put soap on your hands, rub your hands <laughs> together. Okay. Can can we just you know uh, maybe elevate the conversation? And, and find ways to do things better. I mean, there was a day when people had to fight for their own parking space until Disney put character names and had people helping you find a spot. So how do you take and create less friction in an experience of safety? And, and also, like you say, reassure people. I mean, the, the mask is a positive thing in the sense that it's reassuring. Maybe you put, and, and they're doing this already, you put fun faces on the masks and you make it fun. I mean, who doesn't like a masquerade ball? So, I mean, there's ways of getting through this, but I always see, hey, isn't creativity the way to get there? Yeah, you have a scientist and a doctor involved, of course, but it's also, let's make it fun. I mean, Walt Disney saw dirty, filthy, mean, horrible amusement parks and said, I'm not doing that. I want to do something where a whole family will show up and everyone can enjoy it. I can just do it better. And I've always been trained to say, you know, there's the old joke about Disney Imagineers. They say, well, how many Imagineers does it take to change a light bulb? The Imagineer says, does it have to be a light bulb? <laughs> and to me, does it have to be a mask? Does yeah. it have to be? Does it have to be? You know, if you don't have a better idea, the government certainly isn't going to think of them as, as well-meaning and as, 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 as much as they want to. Why can't you present a local government, a better idea. I mean, Walt Disney presented local governments with monorails. He presented them with resorts. And look how the real world has copied Disneyland. Sure. From twinkle lights in the trees to name tags yeah. to guest courtesy to all these things. Lead by example. And so I just feel like the world needs better options and better examples. Thinking about that 2.0 idea of sort of being able to bring creative solutions to something and, and really create a meaningful space that people want to spend time in. I love that idea. And I like that a lot better than, than the stickers on the ground or the face masks or, you know, the hand sanitizer sure. stations. But I wonder just sort of the practicality of that. I'm thinking even of, of TSA that we're, you know, what, 19 years almost after after September 11th. And there are still older airports in the country that are retrofitted with terrible security checkpoints. And there are new terminals and other places that have been built that we sort of know, okay, this is the new reality. We have to build for that. And they can integrate it a lot more seamlessly. And it just doesn't feel quite as as offensive, I guess. But I mean, that some of this is a 10, 12, 20 year timeline. It's not something that, that can be in, in six, 12, 18 months, right? Well, I mean, it's, it is truly difficult. Now, I do know from experience, because we've worked on terminals, is that uh, they want people to choose to fly through their airport because it's more seamless. And in Europe, I've seen, uh, in France, I've seen beautiful, beautiful security checkpoints sure. that are really well done. And there's a moment to be serious because you need to respect the officers involved and so forth. So there's a certain decorum that has to be in those places. But at the same time, um, look at the businesses, a private industry like Clear and these things where people can pay money to avoid it yep. because it's so bad. So, you know, uh, when you're in the Disney universe, people pay more for a premium experience. Uh, and so, yes, there's always going to be this this arc of mediocre to good to bad to terrible. But, uh, you know, it's those better ideas. Uh, you know, and you talk about the practicality of, of, of the medical science. 
All those things can be done, but people do rise to the occasion. They certainly do. And, uh, you know, we, we've, I, th I think we begin to see, to see more of it. But I do think theme parks are going to be in a survival mode. It'll, if you don't make this good enough to show up, there's a 4K monitor that's selling your data that's being given to you below cost to have in your house. Right. You know, I mean, these, these are endangered species. And it, it sort of puts our whole entertainment model at risk here. And I've talked about this with others on this show of, of just sort of, you know, we're on the, on the production side right now, we're getting by with, with doing little zoom videos and stuff. And, you know, the food network has, has started doing all these cooking shows where it's, it's, you know, the talent's husband or the talent's wife that's just sort of shooting them doing a little cooking thing with an iPhone. But at a certain point, there is still going to be, uh, you know, an appetite in the public for a Fast and Furious movie or a Marvel movie or, you know, some big spectacle that you can only get uh, sort of in the cinema. And I wonder how long it's going to be before people really feel safe and comfortable going to to a mass entertainment complex like a theme park. And to your point, is is the hassle worth it? Yeah, I think, you know, when you're waiting in a two-hour line for a three-minute experience at a theme park or these sorts of things, and you look at society and you look at people's attention span and their ability to wait, if you can rewind your own mental clock a little bit, how many rings did you used to wait for someone to answer the phone? If, you could even, if, you, if you're old enough to go pre-voicemail, but, you know, it used to be like five rings you would give someone. You know how long yeah. that is? I feel I like mean, 10 I mean, was even the number I mean, for me growing up, like before an answering machine. Oh, it was wow. like, okay, okay well, 10 rings and then you hang up. Right. So, so people, people's willingness to wait for anything when they can have everything on demand. I mean, technology, the way technology wins is something where people can do something incredibly useful incredibly fast, you know, and those things win. And I mean, I know Jeff Bezos has said a great thing. He says, I don't try to predict the future or what's going to change. I try to predict, predict what is not going to change. Mm. Well, people are always going to want something faster and cheaper. And so I do the same thing with theme parks. I look at human nature. I mean, going all the way back to the Bible, the Bible is the greatest book about human nature, do unto others as you would like to have done to you. I mean, all kinds of various things there human nature about aspiration or what we want and then modeling the context around it uh you know is really a way to see where things are going and i don't know there's a lot of barriers before you even get to a movie theater like the parking and the price of the food and so forth and then you get to the actual delivery system of the theater itself and you have you know uh very high quality television look at the quality of your tv versus a movie screen 10 years ago right and you look at what a 4k screen is for 400 dollars. frankly as long as you have dysfunctional families that hate each other you're always gonna have people wanting to go out of course <laughs> but um so there'll be a need but who's going to win? I just think this is going to be who is going to win and have these premium experiences. I have a Twitter account, an IG account, and I'll put out little feelers about parks and waiting for parks. And and this one person, I put out a little thing about the masks. And the person says, you know, I, I have to save so long to go to Disney World. I'm just going to wait until this, you know, evens itself out because I, I want to get the premium thing. I want the non-mask experience. And and I and I personally don't think that we'll always be living in a world with masks. I don't think that that can that that's terribly sustainable because they don't necessarily work in all conditions. But we will probably have other viral issues to deal with and other perhaps outbreaks and things. You know that that we'll have so that we'll have to be ready for, or these parks will be sensitive to. 
like you say, there's a certain psychological, you know, thing we have, we, we have to be, it has to be safe to go back in the water, so to speak. Right. Yeah, no, totally. And I, I think too, just that, that idea of wanting to, to go to a theme park, even if you're not getting the full experience, if you can't meet characters because they're in masks, or you can't go into a, a theater show because, you know, they can't have too many people in there, whatever it is. I don't know that it's going to be the same crowd, that kind of once in a lifetime, you know, special moments with your kids crowd, at least in the short term. I mean, it just uh, thinking of the demographics of the audience, how do you imagine it, Disneyland or Disney World are going to look different in the short term? Well, in the short term, I think you'll probably have, and by the way, I have no data to back any of this up. This sure. is my little opinion. I feel like there's going to be a certain amount of people that are annual pass holders uh, that are going to want to come back and just get their dose of it because it's an addiction and it's a religion to a lot of people. It sure. just is. They they have to go. They've got to be there. Now, it may not be, and they're going to be curious as to what these restrictions are and what that new experience is. So I think there's going to be a big resurgence of people that want to go. Um, they've already opened Shanghai, and you can get, at least with that particular culture, you've seen a little bit of of what people do, and a lot of people don't necessarily behave. You get to a theme park, and the whole idea of the theme park is that you can jaywalk there. It's a different logic. It's another world. So right. we'll have to we'll have to see. I feel though that so many people we have we have you know record unemployment at least in the United States. So people are going to wait and see what the experience is before they make that decision to go because it's a stretch. A lot of people for Disney World it is it's either a foreign tourists coming in from other countries which mean the airlines themselves are barriers and you have got two hurdles. You've got the getting into the USA, you've got the airline, yeah. the terminal check, uh, and also the price of gas is relatively competitive, like for the first time in history. Right. So people may say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the driving trip. Now, if you look at the sale of RVs right now, it's going through the roof. They can't sell enough RVs and the zeitgeist can be stay closer to home um, yeah, if I can go to a Disneyland, I, I miss it so much. I've got to go see it. So there might be at least a once but it's truly going to be compromised and they're going to be trusting Disney to really. And frankly, I think the bigger people are like the four seasons, these people with, you know, a resort in Hawaii where the right. Island itself doesn't want to let anybody in. What are you going to do with a cruise ship? How are you going to get people off the ship and into an Island? Well, the people that live on the Island have to be willing to accept you know, the state of the passengers getting off the boat. And, and and by the way, the innovations are coming so fast. This the solution, the palette of what you have to work with is changing every day. I mean, think back was one day we had no masks. Right. Don't buy a mask. Don't wear a mask. <laughs> and the next day it's like, you need a mask. You're now required. You can go to the beach here in LA. Yeah. But you must keep moving. You cannot sit down. There will be no sitting. If you stop you know, it's like musical chairs without the chairs. I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. So I feel like a lot of this has to settle down. And that's why I'm not chasing the 1.0. I'm chasing the longer term solution to really try to help figure out what is the movie that people will go see or what is the uh, theme park people will visit. Yeah. And you mentioned a couple of things before augmented reality and, you know, sort of using some app based yeah, yeah. functionality to, you know, virtual cues and things like that. Are there? What else are you seeing in that 2.0 vision, whether it's a theme park or, or any public space? I feel it's a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of wisdom. It's a little bit of low tech. It's a little bit of anthropology and, and psychology. Uh, and it's all these things and then some technology. But I, I don't think it's all one thing. It's like you use a lot of these elements together, like uh, a lot of films 
will use some stop motion, some puppetry, and some CGI. And somehow the audience, uh, it's the best solution for the best overall story or to get the script to read properly. It's not just making a deal with one house to deliver the whole film for you. Right. And so, you know, and, and, and I think of the same thing with theme parks. It's like, well, we're, give me the bag of tricks and give me the script. Give me the script. What are we trying to do for this guest? Well, we're trying to help them escape. What's going to work against it? Well, okay. Being conscious you're in a hospital waiting room or, or that frankly to me, it's like looking at other people, looking at other guests and employees in a wary way. I don't want to look at you like, ooh, did you just touch that? Right. I don't want to touch that doorknob if you touch that doorknob. Imagine that world. We don't want to be in a world where, where everyone is judging everyone else. We just want to be having fun because we actually, part of the strength of Disneyland is seeing people from every race and creed and everything else all having a good time in this alternative world where they're not thinking of politics and everything else. So to me, the goals are very high, and but yet they're very noble. And it's the hardest thing we'll probably ever have to solve, all of us. But it's going to take the creativity of your audience, actors, you know, production designers, uh, you know, writers. It takes all of us to use our, you know, how people think skills and how people react skills to solve this. And I think we all probably cringe a little bit when we see the wine sommelier come up with this mask on and rub red rubber gloves or blue right. gloves trying to open this bottle of wine you've saved up for some anniversary dinner uh, with your loved ones. I, I, I'm not quite sure, but maybe clear gloves like Invisalign braces are a way of you not being instantly reminded in a dimly lit restaurant that this person is doing that. And pretty much once you trust that the whole restaurant, once you've walked in and it has a rating and so you go, okay, I get that, you know? So we're looking at all of it as the answer. We're looking at everything and some things work better than others, but, but we can't know, you know, it's like, you got to try some of this stuff. Yeah. And I think a part of it, as you're saying, is really just looking at it holistically and, and trying to figure out from the guest point of view, how do I want to experience this and not necessarily so many of these decisions get driven from an operations point of view, I think, of just looking at TSA as an example. You know, we want to make sure that nobody is getting a shoe bomb on the plane, so everyone's going to take off their shoes and no one's getting liquids on, so you can't take shampoo with you on an airplane anymore. You know, that kind of thing that operationally makes perfect sense. But when you're the when you're the passenger, you know, half undressed in the TSA line, it's misery. It is misery. And, you know, and it is the, it is the world, you know, the world has not always been designed by the way, most building codes and everything are, are not designed for the 99th percentile. In other words, people recognize earthquake codes in Los Angeles, but I doubt most people are aware the earthquake code is not really written to preserve the building. The earthquake code is only there to give you a certain amount of time to get out of the building or to withstand the earthquake yep. to a certain degree. So, you know, it's called moment framing. Well, it doesn't mean it's going to take a 45-minute earthquake. It, it may it may help with that. It may help sustain it, but there's going to be a lot of damage. The glass may all fall out. All kinds of hazards happen. So, you know, we, we, we can't design the whole planet for every eventuality. Um, and so that's why I was like almost kind of encouraged to see that the general public is going to have to be part of the solution for this as taking on a bit of responsibility because that seems more realistic, frankly. Yeah. And in your mind, is that responsibility like I, I have a fever or I'm, I'm coughing, I should stay home today? Or is that responsibility in, in taking on the risk of I know that 
I might catch something, but I need to just go out and, and do what I need to do anyways. Well, I don't even know with everything that anyone's planned that you couldn't catch something. Certainly, they found people that have been barricaded in their house have gotten sick. We just don't know. So uh, I feel, you know, like, like for example, you look at, the, look at Israel dealing with terrorism. It got to the point after a while where the bombs going off around people, people took a very reasonable amount of safety. They did everything that they could, but people just sort of lived in that world, but they weren't afraid to live in it. There's probably a balance, I would guess, and saying, you know what, I people make decisions, uh, Heath, for two reasons, to either avoid pain or increase pleasure. If you boil it all down, it's like people only collaborate, uh, you know, for money or expertise. That's the only way you make a collaborative deal. Either <laughs> right. somebody does something you need or they have the money for you to do it. Yep. I mean, it, it, it's very simple. So if your desire to go to Disneyland or go to the movies or get on a plane outweighs your fear of getting sick or the consequences, because very few people die of coronavirus, they they may not have a good time with it, but pretty much only people in the target age range, very few. Those people are the ones that are majority of the death. You kind of go, well, you know what? I, I feel like I can do this and, and it's going to be worth it to me and I'm going to do that. Now, you don't want to infect others, but but I feel like those are what's going to drive this happy medium we somehow hopefully get to with with the very best balance of safety, common sense, and good medical practice and, frankly, uh, a world that's short of it, uh, common decency and love for one another, you know, caring more about getting somebody else sick than us. I mean, that to me is the biggest thing that people are fairly selfish in the world we live in, in the times we live in. And uh, they, you know, I don't really care. I'm just going to go. I don't care if I'm coughing. I want to go get my, uh, you know, I want to go get my car fixed. I don't care if I get that guy sick. And we've yeah. seen that. Unfortunately, we've seen that, you know. But I think we've seen, you know, over the last two months, kind of the opposite. It's been a pleasant surprise for me, at least, that, you know, people are willing to stay in their houses for long stretches of time, even at this point, you know, knowing that they're not sick, but just out of out of not wanting to infect other people around them, not wanting to get other people sick. And certainly there's a selfish piece, too, of, of not wanting to get sick themselves. But I feel like so much of this stay-at-home effort and the, these quarantines are much more about spreading the virus to other people. And yeah, like you said, it's we're we're in divided times and selfish times, and it's it's pretty impressive that people have been willing to to sit at home for two months now. Yeah, you know, and, and you're right. There have been good examples of that, but I've but my my fear always is is that you know it doesn't take much to spread things, so it doesn't take a lot of people to to ruin the party. So you know, there's going to be some diligence there, right? And there's going to be some of that. But I I feel like you know entertainment leads the way in so many ways. You know, nobody needs, you know, uh, a Pixar movie. Nobody needs uh, an Avengers movie. But yes, they do. It's, you know, it's it's sort of like the American dream. You know, people get up in the morning to go to work, but it's why they're getting up in the morning to go to work. Is it to thrive or survive? Is it because, um, you know, of their well-being or they have to have that dream? And so, you know, a lot of times what, what films and what different, different things do that are positive, I know Disneyland kind of does that for many people, is that, you know, you want to provide people with um, a positive, uh, optimistic view of the future, you know. Well, and, and you've laid one out today, which uh, I, I hope we get there. And I hope I hope more people are thinking the way you are so that it's it is a holistic approach to design and not just these kind of band-aid stopgap measures because yeah, I don't know that I want to live in a world that's, that's, you know, dots of, dots of tape on the ground and, 
everyone in masks and yeah, you, you can't see those smiles anymore. That, uh, right. that thought bums me out. You know, it's funny. Imagination can be applied to so many things. And thank goodness for Walt Disney, who looked at the studios and said, let's take all these out of work production designers because television at the time was, you know, literally canvas sets with Jackie Gleason. Sure. And I said, let's use these guys to build some dreams people can come and experience. So, uh, you know, creativity, it, it does come from the entertainment business and people, you know, people love it. And so let's all let's all be hopeful and not look at, at refining what's already there. Let's dream a lot bigger and look at what can be. All right, there it is, Eddie Sato. Eddie is the owner of Sato Studios in Los Angeles. They are working hard to try to help businesses across the spectrum try to figure out how to design smartly for this coronavirus crisis. And Eddie, of course, worked at Walt Disney Imagineering for many, many years. And uh, you can hear just his excitement and passion still for the Disney parks. Eddie appears in the documentary series, The Imagineering Story, which is streaming now on Disney+. Plus. If you're not a theme park fan, but this conversation inspired you and you want to learn more, I highly recommend streaming The Imagineering Story on Disney+. Plus. It's a really smart documentary series about the evolution of the Disney parks from the very beginning with Walt Disney all the way up to the opening of Shanghai Disneyland. Uh, definitely check that out. And that's it for today. I do want to give you a little sample of Thursday's show. I'm going to be interviewing one of the co-hosts of America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Country, Julia Collin-Davison. If you only know Julia from TV, I highly recommend that you go check out her Instagram feed right now. Since the beginning of this quarantine, Julia has really ramped up production and has been making a couple times a week some really comprehensive, smart how-to cooking videos and sharing them for free right on Instagram. And it's a process that she is really sort of learning on the fly and was generous enough to talk about that learning process with me. So here's a little preview of Thursday's show. Oh, gosh. Yeah. The first few videos I did when this whole thing started, I mean, they hit the cutting room floor. They're not going to see the light of day. Yeah. It was terrible. I, You know, the lighting was bad. I was really weirdly nervous. I mean, talking to my own phone, no one else in the room. Right. I was nervous about doing this video. And for heaven's sake, you know, I've been on TV for 20 years. You know, with lots of people in the room and lots of lots of live demos. And but this, me in my own kitchen, was a different level of uh, personal. It was very personal. Yeah. And once I kind of got over that, then I could have some fun. That's Julia Colin Davison coming up on Thursday's show. Thank you for, for tuning into Quarantine Creatives. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Let me know what you liked about the show. Let me know what you'd like to hear more of. Please subscribe. Please rate. Until next time. I'll see you soon. Stay safe.